Network is a thinking person's network for our world's progressive visionary. Good morning and welcome to Visionaries. I'm John LaBelle, your host, and you find us every Monday at 10 a.m. Eastern United States time, but we're global. <clears throat> so you have to figure it out for your part of the world. And you find our back shows on visionaries.podbean.com. And today I want to talk about technological optimism. So I'm working on a lecture and which has a lot of visuals, which won't be here. But I thought I'd uh, review some of my ideas, both for you guys and for myself. And um, it begins with a thought that I live in two worlds. Uh, one is academia, where there's no recognition of the world getting better. Everything's getting worse. The other one while back, I had on Steve Valentine, you can look up the old show on Podbean, um, <clears throat> who's the architect for Timeship. And I work on that project. And doing so puts me in touch with leading tech figures. I've been at conferences with just about everybody, you know, Ray Kurzweil, Stephen Wolfram, on and on. And... Um, there's a very optimistic world out there. So which is correct? So I thought I'd look at some of what's going on here. And <clears throat> the uh, my academic life puts us in an environment of uh, forecasts of doom. <clears throat> Our environment, global warming, environmental degradation, resource depletion, peak oil. We're going to run out of everything. Our society. Income inequality, loss of jobs, loss of control by government, big corporations becoming governments onto themselves. Our culture, mindless popular entertainment. How can anybody say that? We're in a golden age of television. There's stuff on the level of Shakespeare going on all the time in our uh, extended drama series. In some, a bleak future of impoverished subjugation. So... Going back to get some perspective, there's actually, um, when I teach this as a course, I require two books of uh, my students. One is Limits to Growth by Club of Rome and uh, Meadows from 1972. And then from 1976, Herman Kahn's Next 200 Years. And... Next 200 years is written as a refutation of uh, limits to growth. So they're perfectly paired. And also, they're 40 plus years ago. So in reading them, you can think, well, did that happen? <laughs> How accurate were they? So in our modern era of forecasts of doom begins with 1968, uh, Paul Ehrlich's book, The Population Bomb. And this was a big deal. 
have to recall that in those days, there's no uh, cable TV. So everything had to be on network TV. And today, um, uh, the late night hosts bloviate about politics and then have uh, movie stars who are promoting their latest movie. Well, didn't you, they used to have a lot more on. They would have, you know, Norman Mailer on talking about his latest book. They would have opera stars on singing opera. So in those days, Paul Ehrlich was a regular guest on these shows talking about, and Population Bomb opens with, in the 1970s and 80s, hundreds of millions of people will starve to death. And it goes on as a whole book of how horrible it's going to be. But, you know, there's a pretty testable uh, comment since we're 40 years beyond. Uh, and we can look back and say, well, how many hundred million people starved to death? Yeah. Just a few years later, 1972, four years later, Club of Rome, which is a kind of futurist group uh, involving leading Italian industrial figures, like the head of Olivetti, I think, stuff like that, and Meadows, computer scientists, did The Limits to Growth. And it's filled with uh, computer-generated, wow, computers, <coughs> computer-generated charts. And they plotted, uh, let's see if I can look at this, um, Uh, pollution, industrial production, agriculture, resource depletion, etc. And then they project out, say, 100 years. And what, what they show is it's all going to collapse around 1990 or year 2000. So <clears throat> they don't give exact dates, but yeah, let's say the year 2000. The whole world collapses. And we're going to be, we're going to run out of food. Well, what if we apply industrial processes to increase agricultural production? Well, then we'll be needing even pollution and we'll run out of natural resources. Well, what if we, no matter what you do, uh, it all collapses around the year 2000. Uh, millions of people starve, we're knee deep in pollution, we've run out of all our natural resources. And uh, the only sustainable uh, prospect is limiting, ending growth. If we keep everything exactly the way it is in 1972, we'll survive for a while. So that's limits to growth. These people are still around. Um, and this point of view is still with us recently. Thomas Friedman's book, hot, flat, and crowded um, puts forward the same, uh, the same position. Thomas Friedman, uh, editorial board of the New York Times, major columnist for the New York Times, an advocate that our country should adopt a dictatorial, totalitarian governmental system like that of China because they're so wonderful. And China is ruled by wise people who know what to do, because everybody knows what to do if you're in the intellectual class. Uh, the intellectuals should be running everything. 
And in China, they actually have the power to do it. So uh, somehow he thinks that's a, some type of utopia. But, but anyway, um, <clears throat> these ideas from 40 years ago, 50 years ago, are still, <coughs> excuse me, totally with us today. In uh, their other recent books, but Thomas Friedman's Hot, Flat, and Crown. By the way, um, I'm a biggest fan of Friedman's The World is Flat. I uh, read, <laughs> read books, I listen to them. I re-listen to that one occasionally. It's still totally um, appropriate today, even though uh, it's been some years. Well, okay, that, that was the prediction. We could look at 100 more books, but these three sum it up. And because the population bomb and limits to growth is 40, 50 years ago, we can ask ourselves, well, what actually happened? Well, what happened is uh, the only famine in the world today occurs when famine is used as a tool of war. There can be, today in our modern world, there can be, you know, like in France in the 1700s, a town would have a crop failure and two-thirds of all the people would die from starvation. The town 50 miles away uh, has plenty of food. They don't have a transportation system. They can move it around. Well, today, we can have a total failure of some major crop and we just switch and eat something else, which can be shipped. So there hasn't been any famine uh, other than as an act of war. No one's died from starvation. And in fact, <laughs> I like to ask my students, what's the number one, the number one health problem in the world today? And of course, it's obesity. <laughs> there's no food shortage. So um, there's a book that uh, we'll mention shortly, but this uh, whole issue has been attacked recently. And there's plenty of charts out there, and I can't show them to you, but we'll be talking about them. But to this day, Ehrlich states, the most serious flaw of the population bomb was that it was too optimistic. So he's still saying, <coughs> the world's going to collapse and we're all going to starve. Eventually, <laughs> as Manuel says on Faulty Towers. So um, what's the long history? There are nifty websites out there, the world in, the world in graphics and stuff like that, and human history, um, where you can see these charts. But two key ones. One of them shows um, population of the um, major countries as bubbles, and they get bigger between 1800 and 2000, 2009. And uh, height as they increase in wealth, they go up the graph, and life expectancy as they go to the right. And end of uh, summation is the poorest countries in the world today are richer and live longer than the richest countries were in 1800. Even the poorest do better than in 1800. And then... If you make a, 
a graph of uh, prosperity, however you want to measure it. Um, and it's pretty flat from, shall we say, the beginning of agriculture, 4,000 to, say, 2,000 B.C., until 1800. So if we go back to 2000 BC and we're in ancient Egypt, they were pretty prosperous. They built the pyramids. Um, you know, they uh, took care of everybody. And if we go back to Rome, say uh, 200 AD, probably people there were healthier, better fed, more prosperous than people were in London in 1700. So, uh, you know, maybe there's a slight ticking up, but not much for thousands of years. And then we hit 1800, and suddenly we go into a hockey stick that's suddenly going straight up in terms of global population, per capita wealth, total wealth. Um, and then if you think, if you, you know, and understandings in science so that, yeah, the Greeks had science, had some <laughs> rudimentary understandings of certain principles. They were pretty sophisticated in mathematics. But we understand the atom. We understand subatomic particles. We can, I, you know, you read this stuff where there's now, they're studying exoplanets, planets that go around stars uh, not in our solar system. And they say, oh, we found one that's Earth-like. What do you mean? Well, we know the temperature, the uh, uh, atmospheric composition. How do they tell that? The star is a speck itself. And then they can say there's a planet going around it. They know how far the planet is from its sun. <laughs> they know its size and mass. They know its atmospheric composition. How do they do that? Uh, the cap scientific capabilities are incredible. And uh, this has all been done in the past 200 years. And limits to growth. One of the things they tracked was natural resources. And they pretty much said, we're going to run out of everything. And uh, one of their favorites was aluminum. We're going to run out of aluminum. Um, excuse me, 8% of the Earth's crust is aluminum. Where would it go? <laughs> How can we run out of it? And what they meant was we're running out of bauxite, which is the ore typically used to make aluminum. But aluminum is made out of dirt and electricity. Uh, we're not going to run out of it. And um, so... To get it to get it from a different uh, from a different uh, ore. There's more aluminum in landfills than there is in the ores that we mine to get it. <laughs> mine landfills for the next hundred years to get aluminum, and you know which is terrible. I mean, it shouldn't be. We'll talk about that in a minute, but there's no way we're going to run out of aluminum. And which brings us, of course, to peak oil. Peak oil, peak oil, we're going to run out of oil. Suddenly you don't hear peak oil anymore. Well, what we can run out of is $7 a barrel oil. 
Saudi Arabia is the only place that still has $7 barrel oil. You stick your toe in the sand in Saudi Arabia and oil starts bubbling up. Elsewhere, they go down five miles. Imagine that, drilling down five miles and then they hang a left and go horizontally for another mile. <laughs> and so suddenly you're talking about 60, 70, 80, $100 barrel oil. And at that point, it's not going to run out for hundreds of years. Uh, same thing with natural gas. Until a few years ago, no one ever looked for natural gas. Natural gas just bubbled up when they, as a byproduct, when they drilled for oil, and then they'd flame it off. You'd just see the flame coming out of the top of the walls. They'd just burn off the natural gas. Well, today we don't do that anymore, and we collect it. But once they start looking for natural gas, there's, it's not going to run out for hundreds and hundreds of years. Now, the problems, we'll talk about those in a minute. But we're not going to run out of anything. And if we do run short on something like copper, well, what's copper, the main use of copper? main use of copper was high-tension electric power lines. Uh, use a lot of copper for that. And we're running short on copper, and it's getting more expensive. They switched to aluminum. It's just as uh, electrically conductive as copper and in the right alloys more so. And it's much stronger and much lighter so that you can make much better high-tension power lines. Problem solved. Uh, if you do run out of something, we keep talking about rare earths, of which we stop mining them, so they're all coming from China. But you know, if we start mining, and there's plenty of rare earths, and we can substitute other materials. They're used in, uh, in high power magnets and stuff like that. But uh, we're not going to run out of rare earths. And if there's something we run short on, we use something else. So um, now we did leave a few thousand pounds of aluminum behind on the moon. <laughs> Maybe that's what they were worried about. So about um, 10 years ago, there was a whole series of books, articles, studies on uh, the great stagnation. So we started to observe, you know, uh, yeah, the, the uh, smartphone is great. But other than the smartphone, we haven't been seeing too much since the 70s. You know, computers have gotten more powerful and we have smartphones. But that's about it. What, what, you know, what, what happened? Why don't we see more? As <laughs> some wag stated, um, they promised us flying cars and jetpacks and gave us 120 characters. Uh, so there's a book, The Great Stagnation, and uh, the New York Magazine did an article, The Blip, based on this uh, material. And the argument was, well, you know, for the past 100, for 100 years, up till 1970, it, why did it happen? And one theory was, we picked all the low-hanging fruit. In other words, um, 
a uh, hundred years ago, two hundred years ago, we developed a flush toilet. Fantastic! You don't have to go out to the outhouse in the middle of the night, in the middle of winter. Uh, but well, how much more improvements are we going to make in the bathroom? You know, we got the sink, we got the shower, we got the flush toilet, we got soap. Uh, not much has changed in the bathroom other than, you know, more attractive tile work in the past 50, 100 years. So maybe uh, the good idea is, you know, we got the automobile, we got uh, penicillin. Uh, it seems to you know, pretty much cover it. The, the colonies on the moon are going to be more difficult. Uh, vaccine, universal vaccine for influenza is going to be more difficult. So that's going to take longer. That was one theory. Another theory, which is my favorite one, is government regulation. We got the computer because the government, it flew in under the radar. And now, you know, government's put a stop to it. So, you know, it's, Computers don't improve anymore. They've taken over. So the government took over IBM, and they've killed the company. IBM's no longer a significant company. Then they took over Microsoft, wouldn't allow Microsoft to merge the desktop with the Internet. Um, they couldn't bundle uh, browsing with the desktop. So uh, uh, Google was able to surpass them with uh, Chromebook. And now they've taken over Apple. So Apple needs government approval for all its apps. But <clears throat> the uh, iPhone came just in time, two years later, and it would not have been able to happen. Steve Jobs would still be applying for government approvals and testing for, you know, the idea that you can make a device that goes online, downloads information, has... Uh, has uh, Bluetooth communication. You can't do that without every one of those things getting uh, passing through government regulations and getting approved, and it, which takes years. So if the iPhone hadn't happened when it did, we still wouldn't have it. So that's another argument. But there's yet another argument, which is things have been getting better. And... Um, Lovechin, who's a member of the PayPal Mafia. PayPal Mafia is a half a dozen guys who uh, co-founded PayPal and each pocketed a couple hundred million dollars when they sold it. And most famous uh, of those people are Elon Musk and um, uh, what's his name? Occur to me in a moment. And they've gone on to found numerous other multi-billion dollar companies. But uh, what's his name? Uh, Levchin was writing a book on this great stagnation. And then all of a sudden the book never happened because it unstagnated. We're in the midst of another explosion. So a uh, couple books that came out that point this out. One of them looking at the long history is um, The Rational Optimist by Matt Ridley. Highly recommend it. And it looks at 
what's been happening recently. And he's written more books that look at recent technological development. But this one goes all the way back to, you know, before we emerge as human being. Uh, you know, making stone tools and fire and stuff like that. And the key cause of uh, our exploding prosperity, uh, he claims, is sex between ideas. The moment you have trade and you start exchanging ideas, the whole thing takes off. So um, uh, highly recommended The Rational Optimist. And the other one that also looks at the past couple hundred years but focuses on recently is Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker. So I'm a huge Pinker fan. He's a Harvard psychologist. And he wrote a book, uh, The Better Angels of Our Nature, How the World's uh, People Are Getting Morally Better, uh, which, you know, if you disagree, read the book and then let me know. But uh, one of his books that I really appreciate is, um, uh, what is it, the, a book on the, what do they call it, tabula rasa. So the, um, one of the key, some of the key figures of the Enlightenment held, they were born the mind of blank slate, tabula slate rasa. And everything is a result of our education. And that's, communism loves that idea because then it can make a new human being. We can do away with greed and make new human beings just a matter of upbringing. Um, well, you know, it, it sort of works if you kill 100 million people in the process. Uh, but basically there are major patterns in the human mind and the human behavior. And Pinker's book, uh, demonstrates that, which makes him hated by contemporary liberals. He wrote another book, uh, Sense of Style, and it's a book on grammar. He's a linguistic psychologist, so that's his field. And terrific book. Um, unfortunately, you can't, it does exist on audio, but it, you can't, it doesn't work. You need to read it. Because what he does is show how <laughs> sentences are structured, uh, how they can go wrong, and how they should be structured. And I'm very into that. You know, I read Strunk and White when it came out, Elements of Style. I prefer and recommend to my students On Writing Well by Zinzer. And, uh, but better than either of them is Sense of Style, although it's quite involved. Doesn't provide a bunch of simple rules, but very complicated uh, explanations of how sentences work, which is about, ultimately, how the mind works. How do we put ideas together? And so studying grammar is studying the mind. So anyway, I highly recommend that book. But Enlightenment Now shows how Starting in the late 1700s, new ideas came about called the Enlightenment. We're still in the midst of the Enlightenment, and it led to this explosion in prosperity and to an explosion in, um, in um, 
everything getting better. And we'll talk about more about that in a minute. So, uh, enlightenment now is viciously attacked. Uh, people don't want to hear this. He gave a TED talk. He's a major figure. Um, you know, you, if you say who are the leading two dozen public intellectuals who show up on YouTube, he, he's one of them, major figure. And for the first time, I'd never saw this before, he gave a TED talk, and TED then published a letter signed by a dozen other TED speakers viciously attacking him in his talk. Never seen anything like it. It's not acceptable to say things are getting better. Well, what does he mean by things are getting better? So let's look at the ideas in these two books. Um, going back to the rational optimists and the long history, how do you measure wealth? And there's a guy named William Nordhaus who did a lot of uh, analysis. And he comes up with the idea of how much time do you have to work to get something? So ancient Babylonians worked 300 hours for one hour of light, which came from an oil lamp. So you had to work 300 hours to get the amount of oil it would burn for one hour. By 1950, we worked eight seconds for one hour of light. So if you take the cost of a light bulb and the cost of electricity to light it, um, you had to work eight seconds for one hour of light. So, I don't know, if you wanted eight hours of light, multiply that. Uh, but today, we work one quarter of a second for one hour of light because our, um, our uh, work is more effective and our LED light bulbs use far less power, about one quarter of the power for the same amount of light. So that's four million times better than Babylonia and 32 times better than 1950. You say 1950, I think of um, I was nine years old and where I was living and imagine throwing the switch and turning on a light bulb. Anyway, uh, these books are filled with graphs and you can find them on the internet. But the most reproduced one is people living in extreme poverty. So extreme poverty is defined as $2 a day adjusted for inflation. And what does that mean? But basically, you go back to 1820, 90% of people lived in extreme, lived on $2 a day or less. Life was hard, whatever that meant, but it wasn't fun. Uh, <clears throat> by 1970, 60% of the world's population lived in extreme poverty. And the rest of us were doing pretty well. You know, we had refrigerators by 1970. Um, we had, uh, we were eight years away from uh, uh, Apple IIs. Um, so 60% of the world's population. But today, it's 10% in just 50 years since 1970. We've gone from 
um, 60% to 10%. And it gets even better. Um, so if you look at extreme poverty, basic education, literacy, democracy, vaccination, we're not always in favor of that at uh, PRN. Uh, child mortality, they're all off the charts, getting better. So I did some looking up, just something off the wall again. I mean, automobile deaths per mile, 90% drop. So if we go back to 1970, we've had a 90% drop in deaths from industrial accidents. In, I'm sorry, serious injury and death. So losing a hand in a machine, I mean, horrible. It had dropped 80% from um, 1900 to 1970, but then it dropped another 90%. All those OSHA rules that everybody complains about, they work. So in the past decade, extreme poverty fell in half from 18% to 9%. Half a million people get electricity every day in the past decade. Malaria in Africa declined 60%. Antiviral drugs reduced HIV AIDS deaths by half. Life expectancy increased three years. Mortality rate for children declined one-third. Death rates from air pollution globally declined 20%. In China, deaths from air pollution declined 25%. The richest countries used in the last decade used less, despite growing economies. Used less aluminum, nickel, steel, stone, cement, sand, wood, paper, fertilizer, water, crop acreage, and fossil fuels every year for that decade. And US CO2 emissions dropped 13% just in the past decade. So the, um, yeah, there's a lot of bad things out there and we'll talk about them, but a lot of things are getting a lot better. So um, I, now that the miracle of uh, modern self-publishing, <laughs> uh, you take a book and you produce it in PDF. You email it to Google. And two weeks later, your book is on, I'm sorry, email it to Amazon. And two years later, your book is on uh, am, a half a dozen Amazons around the world uh, selling away. So both of my parents, late parents, they've been dead a long time, uh, wrote books about their childhood, you know, from the age of about, oh, five or six till they went off to college. And uh, they were sitting around, um, and I've been able to publish them. So, I, you know, I had to proofread them and write introductions and do all that stuff. So I'm very attuned to what, uh, is, what is in the books. So let's take a break. And um, we'll be back in just a minute. We'll hear some promos for other cool stuff on PRN, and we'll be right back. Hi, everyone. I'm Gary Knoll, the founder of the Progressive Radio Network. 
Today we have more than 80 producers bringing forth the most progressive and most liberating information. The kind of information you do not regularly hear on any of the mainstream or alternative media. You can help us now. Up to this point, I have virtually supported the Progressive Reader Network, all of its expenses and payroll, myself. But we would like to expand our reach. We'd like to do far more. We'd like to be able to advertise on Facebook and let others know we exist. We are the number one Progressive Reader Network in the world. In fact, we have programs that are most listened to in all of Progressive Radio. But we could go a lot further. Our message could reach a lot more people, especially at a time when people are desperate for honest, objective insights on the important topical issues of our day. How can you help? It's simple. Go to prn.fm. Go to our main page. In the upper right-hand corner, you'll see a little button, Support Now. And then whatever you can contribute on a monthly basis will make a big difference. It will help get the message out. It will help inform more people, give them more choices. This is where you'll hear in the independent candidates and the people looking to challenge the corruption in government and industries. But we need to get our reach out further. So please, whatever you can afford on a monthly basis, and there's some suggestions there, and it'll be automatic. All right, thank you very much for continuing to help us help you and the rest of the world on these important issues. Economic, political, and military decisions in Washington, D.C. impact the entire United States and world. The Progressive Radio Network, prn.fm. So this is John LaBelle. You're listening to Visionaries on PRN.FM, the Progressive Radio Network. And we're on every Monday at 10 o'clock Eastern U.S. time, but we're global. So check what time in your part of the world and catch all of our back shows on pod, uh, visionaries.podbean.com. So talking about technological optimism, and uh, I was looking at, my memoirs of my parents wrote growing up. My my mother was maybe we might say uh, upper middle class, and my father, no, my mother middle middle class, my father lower middle class, and they're growing up. Mother grew up in Queens. They had electricity. My father grew up in the Bronx. They had uh, gas lights when he was a kid, and I was looking at. Um, yeah, you know, just thinking about it. And today, the poorest American lives better than Louis the Fourteenth. I mean, Louis the Fourteenth couldn't envision this. The poorest American today, and my parents had none of these. Carry a three million dollar Cray supercomputer. Can speak to anyone anywhere in the world for free. Have access to all music, movies, books, anywhere, anytime. Have access to unlimited information. 
sorted and organized, can travel the globe, have refrigerators. <laughs> My mother, um, actually, they both had ice boxes, um, and can click an icon, and any consumer good will show up in two days. <laughs> Free shipping. So, um, so let's go. Let's get to the bad stuff, and five big problems. So one of them is water. Every day, 4,000 children die from dirty water. So let's do something about it. So Dean Kamen, uh, America's greatest inventor, living inventor, and uh, brought us a segue of one of his flops, but other great stuff like the, uh, the uh, briefcase kidney dialysis machine. So people on kidney dialysis can travel. Um, it's developed a slingshot about the size of a dorm room refrigerator. You feed raw sewage into it, and you get out medically, um, medically medical-grade injectable pure water uh, at two cents a liter. And that's, I mean, it, you have to burn something. You have to runs on cow dung or scrap wood. But people are now making solar-powered devices that extract water out of desert air. There's water there, and it can now be extracted, clean, pure water, distilled. CO2, um, well, we're just seven doublings, 14 years, from solar, e solar energy equaling all energy use. Now, that doesn't mean in 14 years all fossil fuel burning will stop, but it does mean that um, you know, you might still have to run uh, electric gener uh, fossil fuel generators at night or whatever. Although battery storage is uh, progressing rapidly, uh, or I should say storage, because why make a battery? You just use the, the electricity solarly generated to run a winch to lift up a heavy weight and then let the weight go down and it'll spin the motor and it lifted it up and turned it into a generator and make electricity again. So it's a very cheap way to make a very big battery. And then fossil fuels um, are hydrocarbons, hydrogen and carbon. You burn it, you get CO2 and H2O. Well, you take um, natural gas, methane, hydrocarbon, bubble it through a molten metal, and it separates the carbon from the hydrogen. You then collect the carbon, pull it through a shower head, and you make the fibers for um, uh, composites, like uh, the new jets are not made out of aluminum, they're made out of plastic with uh, carbon fiber in them. And you burn the hydrogen to run your electrical generators and the waste material is drinkable water, H2O. Uh, just like a hydrogen-powered car, water comes out of the exhaust pipe. And then those airplanes were just two doublings away from electric airplanes. Uh, you can make an electric airplane. They're very efficient. They're, they're excellent. The batteries are too heavy. So uh, there are dozens and dozens of... Uh, new technologies on the horizon for better batteries, and eventually batteries will double in the capacity per weight, and then a double when they double once more, 
you can fly jumbo jets with batteries. So that's coming. Um, biodiversity. Okay, now I'm going to tell you my fantasy. I imagine, <clears throat> and I, you know, I'm not a whatever a development enthusiast that we should be, um, <laughs> you know, tear down the forest and put up a parking lot. No. First of all, electric cars, when they're self-driving, are going to lead to 80% reduction in the number of cars. I'm looking at my students. They don't wear watches. They don't own televisions. I mean, they're totally up-to-date people, but uh, those technologies are over. They don't drive cars. Um, they use cars. <laughs> Call an Uber. <laughs> but why own one? All the cool, all the cool people at, when I was a student uh, at college had cars. I had brought my car to school occasionally. Drove, uh, drove it uh, from home to school and keep it a week or so if I was moving furniture around or something. Uh, so I'd occasionally have a car on campus, but none of my students have cars on campus. They use Ubers. Um, but suppose you were to put a giant checkerboard on the globe. I'm not sure the size, but let's say 500 miles per side of each square. There's a new rule. Um, you, human beings and industry and development can occupy the black squares and the white squares can't be touched. No fishing, no cutting forests, let the prairies return, no killing animals in the white squares. So return half the earth to wilderness. That we, we can live in the other half. Could we grow enough food? Well, we're on the verge of urban farming. Urban farming's gonna lead to an, well, what's urban farming? You grow your plants in high-rise buildings, uh, water them by misting the roots, and you suddenly have a 90% reduction in land use, energy use, water use, and chemicals, and 90% reduction in transport uh, use. Uh, Lab-grown and veggie meats. Oh, I had my first Impossible Burger. <laughs> I have to look up what they're made out of. Say they're made out of peas. Uh, I couldn't tell the difference. It's, it's happening right now. We're still cutting down the Amazon. We should stop that. In the meantime, a group called Flash Forest aims to um, use drones to plant a billion trees by 2028. So they have these drones. They're filled with little darts. Each dart has a growth gel and a little in it and a seedling planted in the gel. And the, the container is biodegradable. So the drone flies over an area you wanna reforest, shoots these things into the ground, tens of thousands of them per drone, a whole fleet of them, you know, can reforest miles in a day. Uh, and then these trees grow. They, they get started with this growth gel and then they take over. Um, what are the other big problems? Waste disposal. 
Well, let's cut it out. Um, in, there's a book by one of the architect heroes, Bill McDonough, Cradle to Cradle, not Cradle to Grave, but everything we make should be totally recyclable. And in Germany, they don't crush cars into those big cubes like we see in Christine, the Stephen King movie that, uh, uh, I think it's a 58. Uh, I had a, my family had a 57 uh, Plymouth. I think it's a 58 Plymouth in Christine. In the end, gets crushed into a cube. <laughs> but it's still alive. Anyway, uh, in Germany, every part of a car has a code on it. And they take it apart. And every part goes into a separate bin, depending upon the code. And it all gets recycled. I mean, yeah, it's going to cost a bit more. We've we got to do that. Plastic ocean waste. Well, that's disgusting. I mean, it's totally unacceptable. First of all, let's get clean water so we're not drinking out of plastic bottles. And let's reuse our bottles if we do. But I was in Bali. I mean, paradise! And on a Buddhist retreat. And we were getting um, uh, our water. We had a big water bag made out of canvas so that it... Uh, it sweats water. It would, water would filter through and evaporate, cooling it. We fill it up every day and throw iodine pills in there. So that's how we got our water. But the locals are drinking bottled water. And then what do they do with the bottles? They burn them. What is this? I mean, it's, I mean here we are in paradise on our Buddhist retreat in Bali, and we're smelling burning plastic. So let's cut that out. In the meantime, there are technologies out there working on gathering up this ocean waste. I don't know how you do that when it's the size of Texas. But anyway, all recycled plastic, all plastic should be recycled and made into lumber. If you're in the suburbs and you have a deck, your deck might not be made out of wood anymore. You know, your, your wooden deck rots in three, four years. And you got to replace it. So today, typically, the decking is made out of plastic. Lasts forever. Where do they get the plastic? Recycled bottles. Your fleece vest is made, your fleece sweater <coughs> is made out of uh, recycled Coke bottles. So uh, let's stop cutting down trees for lumber, and let's uh, take all our plastic, recycle it, and make lumber out of it to build our houses. So um, we're in the middle of technological explosions, in the middle of exponential growth of computers where um, I just downloaded a couple of cool things. So the new Mac Pro the desktop can now uh, maxes out with a Intel 28-core chip. 28 supercomputers in one computer. But uh, that's $60,000 when you max it out. So most of us won't be getting that. <clears throat> but just integrated circuits. 1958, two transistors. Today, 7 billion. That's already two, year, uh, two years ago. A... Um, 
27 billion fold improvement in 47 years. And we're not, it didn't end today. We're still, we're still doing it. Storage, 1956, uh, $120,000 for a five megabyte hard disk. Today, um, you get a terabyte on one of those little chips you put in your camera or your phone, a 10 trillion fold improvement, and it's nowhere near stopping, it's accelerating. How powerful is your computer? Infinitely. It accesses the cloud, your tablet or your phone. doesn't have uh, Wikipedia on it. It gets it from the cloud, and Wikipedia keeps growing. We're in the midst of um, new improvements in software, so we're getting neural nets. Try Google Translate. It actually works. Quantum computing will be billions of times more powerful than today's computers. The Internet of, ev of Things or the Internet of Everything, smart dust, little sensors the size of specks of dust in everything. You buy a fountain pen, it'll have a sensor in it, tell Amazon to send a new one when it runs low. Human computer interface. You know, the great thing about the Mac was it wasn't DOS. It um, was... Uh, GUI, graphical user interface. Well, our phones still use the same interface, but now, uh, at what point are we going to get that interface on a um, contact lens? And Elon Musk just started a company to um, do neural implants. How do you get access to this? Facebook. Google, SpaceX are all racing to provide universal free internet access. Um, so we're in this midst, mist, mist. We're in the middle of <laughs> these technological explosions. Biotech suddenly realized 1953 Watson and Crick decoded DNA. Four letters. A, T, G, and C, they're base pairs. Two rules, A and T can link, G and C can link. 20 parts, 20 amino acids, make all of life. And with CRISPR, any high school student can fool around with it. I don't know if that's good or bad. So we're in the midst of technological explosions. So more on where this is going in a future show. Uh, it's only getting started, so uh, thanks for tuning in. Tune in next week. John LaBelle, you've been listening to Visionaries. Catch this show and all our back shows on visionaries.podbean.com, and this is PRN. <laughs>